Okay, T- today we still in chapter 47 about God's judgment on Babylon and uh, the shame and humiliation brought about to them. And the same would happen to us, the reason he, when he tells us to come out of Babylon. Uh, humble yourself or be brought low. Coming out of Babylon, one of the ways to come out of Babylon is is you have to humble yourself because Babylon consists of pride, arrogance, all of those high-minded things. It's the world, the world system and everything. So it's a spiritual retreat away from the ways of the world and the things of the world. Because if you don't humble yourself, he's going to bring you low. He's going to humble you. 47th chapter says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Uh, Take the millstone and grind meal. Uncover thy locks. Make bare the leg. Uncover the thigh. Pass over the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not meet thee as a man. Sit thou silent, and get thee into the darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was wroth with my people, I have polluted mine inheritance, and given them into thine hand. Thou didst show them no mercy, unto the ancient thou hast had thou been very heavily laid thine yoke. And thou sayest, I shall be a lady forever, uh, so that thou didst not lay them these things to heart, neither did they remember the latter end of it. Therefore now this thou thou art given to pleasures that dwellest carelessly, that saith in thine heart, I am and none else beside me. I shall not not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to thee in a moment, in one day, the loss of children, widowhood, and they shall come unto thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thy enchantments. Herein is, we see vengeance is God, and he's repaying her for that which she's done to his people. That's why I say when people do you things, when we come to the Lord, we realize that they hadn't done it unto me, they'd done it unto the Lord. We start realizing that vengeance is God, and one day he'll repay. So uh, we are enjoined by him to humiliation and self-affliction. Humiliation and self-affliction. We must learn those things. Uh, Leviticus 16, chapter 29 through the 31st verse says, this shall be a permanent statue for you in the seventh month. That's around October. On the tenth day of the month, you shall humble yourselves by fasting and not do any work, whether the native born or the stranger who lives temporarily among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. And you shall humble yourselves. It is a permanent statue. Huyen is enjoying on a specific day. It says this is a Sabbath unto you. This is one of the 
high Sabbaths of the Old Testament, which you had various Sabbaths in the Old Testament, varying from that of the seventh-day Sabbath. This wasn't a seventh-day Sabbath. That's why when Paul talks in one of his books about Sabbaths, of keeping Sabbaths and everything, we know that as the Sabbath was a shadow of things to come or whatever, so this enjoyment here for us to humble ourselves wouldn't be in a particular month or uh, time of year as it was in the Old Testament. This is how we should be every day. Because if we've entered into the rest of the Lord, if we're in Christ, it's Him that received of, of all these things, and we're resting in Him. We've come to Christ. We've laid our burdens and cast all our cares up on Him. And so every day should be the same to us. Every day is the same. Every day is that day that we're resting in the Lord, for He doeth the work. It's no longer us doing the works and bear the burden. He said, He that is heavy laden and burdened, come unto me and cast those upon me to allow Him to bear those burdens. So this is a memorial in our lives that we're mindful of in Christ Jesus. Like I said, the Old Testament was our example of what to do. So we come up under this by the Spirit of the Lord. That's what the Spirit has given us to, to lead us and guide us into all truth, to make us in His image and His likeness. Leviticus 23, 26-32, second verse, is the same thing. It's just I wanted to give you that as a note also. Uh, since one of these days we'll be blessed with somebody to put up a website. I used to tend to our website. We used to have this website, but I have so many other things going, I no longer can tend to a website. But let's pray to the Lord that he send members in and someone that can have maintenance and keep up a website for us so people can follow our notes and outlines and things. The book of Ezra, the 8th chapter, in the 21st through the 23rd verse says, then I proclaim the fast there at the river of Hava that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek him of uh, to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for our substance for I was ashamed to to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way because we had spoken unto the king saying the hand of our God is upon upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. So with prayer and supplication, our request should be made known to the Lord. In some things, as a Christian, as a, the body of Christ, as a member of God's family, we should be ashamed before the world to ask the world to do certain things for us or go to the world for certain things. And here, Ezra, he, he had, Nehemiah had, and Ezra, when they were going back, he had said this as the king's cupbearer thing, and he was saying how God was going to protect him and keep him. So he would have felt ashamed to ask the king uh, for a band of soldiers and everything to protect him when we're preaching and teaching that God protects us, we would be mighty awkward or ashamed or well put for to go ask somebody else, some man to do this. 
So he entreated and prayed to God and fasted to God. That's the affliction that we have, a self-affliction, is that we cast out cares and burdens and everything. We take it to the Lord in prayer. The Babylonian system, the Babylonian, the woman who rides the beast. Remember I told you this woman that was riding the beast? I think this is a seductive spirit of that's in rebellion against God because you remember it wasn't the kings of the earth it was the kings of the earth eventually fights against this woman and destroys and eats her flesh but the woman does ride the beast in other words is over these governments and everything so we see this spirit manifest during the last election cycle and we're seeing it manifest in this nation as Christianity in the guise of Christianity, whereas you hear them, uh, one of the presidents that said what Christians do nowadays is carry a Bible in one hand and a gun in the other hand. It's contradictory that thou should not kill, but here we are killing, committing adultery, we're uh, murdering babies and abortion and things, we're same-sex marriage, and you'll protect your own self, and Christians are mighty hearty and high-minded and arrogant today. They are mighty pugnacious. They are very vengeful. Doesn't any look anything like the spirit of Christ, but it's the spirit of the world. The world has shaped their worldview. The world has shaken shaped them. But Jesus says, You're smitten on the right hand, turn to the left, turn the left cheek. Turn the other cheek if we smitten. But now we, we go stand our ground. We, we say Christians. That, that's because the preachers and the teachers preaching this into the people. This is the spirit, this unrestrained spirit that God says, he that restrain it be taken away. Common grace is moved and now we are being given unto the spirit of this world. This seductive spirit, this doctrine of Jezebel, this doctrine of Balaam. But God's people, God's people have to learn to humble themselves. It says in Second Chronicles, the 7th chapter and the 14th verse, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So we know the land will be healed. We know that God's going to do his work, but we know that a lot of his people have to be humble and a lot of people will take partake of the plagues of Babylon because they hadn't came out of Babylon. So we need to learn fasting and humility. We need to put that on, put on Christ, clothe in that. And we bear the shame in this life. We bear the shame that holiness bears that this world is resentful against. This world... Uh, looks down upon the shame that we bear of taking up our cross and denying ourselves and follow after him. Holiness in a sense is ridicule. ridicule. Uh, the shame. Jesus uh, was said that if those who deny him, he's going to deny them. According to Mark 8.38 and Luke 9.26. So in our actions and in our way of life, if we hadn't taken up our cross and imitate him, become as he was, walk as he walked, live a life of faith and humility, 
then he's going to be ashamed on us before the Father. If we deny him, he's going to end up denying us then. We have to own him in this life. That's coming out of Babylon. Being holy and not ashamed of who he is and what he is. No man stood with Paul. He says, now demons have forsaken me for this present world. It's a lot of people that have forsaken the true holiness, the, the people of holiness, what holiness truly is because of this present world Christianity or what this world. It didn't say demons had left religion and Christianity. It says demon had forsaken me for this present world. This world's Christianity is a duplicate. It's a, it's feigning Christ. Satan's ministers are being transformed into ministers of light but they're bringing in damnable doctrine like Balaam brought in. He knew he couldn't get them to curse, that he couldn't curse them, but he was going to get them to bring a curse upon themselves through fornication of adult and idolatry, and that's what the church is doing today. The doctrinal issues, we've drunken of the wine of the fornication of the mother of harlots, that great mystery Babylon. We see shame is... Uh, Humility is brought back by the innocence of sin being the innocence that's tainted in us. Sin brings about humility. Genesis 3, 7 through 12, Adam and Eve. And, it's, and just read the 10th verse. It says, And he said, I heard thine voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now this account of Adam's and Eve's reaction to their sin demonstrates demonstrates that sin destroys innocence because he said, who told you that you were naked? You know, if if we come to the knowledge, the realization that we know that we're naked and we have to cover up, our clothing or what we clothe ourselves is like filthy rags. It's fig leaves. God destroyed the fig leaves of their covering and he presented, he made himself, he got a lamb for a sacrifice and gave them a covering. Yes. God gives us his covering, the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. He, his righteousness we're supposed to be covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ which is imputed unto us. He's our covering. He's that day of atonement. He had atoned for our sin. He paid for our sin. He a covering for us. So were two people ever more innocent at the beginning of their lives than Adam and Eve was? They walked and talked with Adam, with God in the cool of the evening. But immediately after sinning, though, they felt shame because of their nakedness, and they doubly showed their guilt by hiding from God. And we see now man is no longer ashamed. Babylon is, Babylon is not shame. Wickedness is no shame. You see young men and women with their pants and clothing hanging down on them, sagging with their underwear showing and dressing immodestly in lasciviousness. The clothing that we wear that exposes the body that causes others to lust after us, the pornographic literature and all of these things causes us to have to fight a battle right here in this world. We can't geographically leave the world but we have to fight to stay away from the evil, the wickedness, and the dirt and filth that's in this world. Do the, do the truly innocent have to uh, need to hide anything? Do the innocent need to feel shame? 
Sin leaves a tarnish on a person's mind so that he does not look at life quite the same way anymore. And that's what I said. Jesus Christ comes to get rid of our guilt. What do we do with our guilt? Each year the priest offered up that bullet for the atonement of the people or whatever. But it didn't dispel the guilt in their minds and their hearts that they had sinned. See, what Jesus does, it's a removal, the remission of sin. His blood, which the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do. He gives us a clear conscience. He gives us that he's paid for our sin. Our sin and all of the sin that we actually could commit has been paid for, has been atoned for by Jesus Christ. It had laid, been laid up on him. We see our worthlessness, our sinfulness, our guilt that we couldn't do this so we had a sacrificial land, someone that took our sin. What we had did, we were guilty before God. And now we can walk that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He's removed that. Now we have to take up our cross and follow after Him. You see, now we've put on Christ. We're, we're, we purge ourselves. We keep ourselves from this world. We have to keep ourselves from sin in this present evil and, and world fighting against wickedness in high places and darkness and principalities. It's a hard fight. Yes. So we must bear it in this life. Uh, the Israelites was destitute when they of, uh, and guilty of sin when they worshiped before the golden calf. Exodus 32 25 is when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their own shame among their enemies by causing them, they made this golden calf and they were partying and worshiping. That's before the enemy. That's, that caused God's name to be blasphemed. They uncovered themselves by worshiping an idol. Idolatry brings us to a shameful, naked end in God. That's what happened with the Laodiceans. They were rich and wealthy materially, but spiritually they were wretched and naked and had need of oil to anoint themselves with eyesight so that they couldn't see their nakedness. They couldn't see this nakedness. They didn't have an understanding of God. They thought they had need of nothing, but they were in a horrible condition. That's what sin does. Now, Amplified reads, Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to the point of being an object of mockery among our enemy, among their enemies. And that's what happens a lot of people. Mark the people of God. We are mocked, and we know God is not mocked, and that we shouldn't put God in a position uh, where they can say that's what happened with David. God punished David because he says, you caused my name to be blaspheming among the Gentiles. We have to stay away from things that tarnish us, that cause us to be unrobed, to walk in darkness. The unjust, the unjust, I tell you, they had no shame. The book of Zephaniah, the third chapter in the fifth verse says, the just Lord is, 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 is in the midst of thereof. He will not do iniquity 
Every morning do he bring forth his judgments to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. So anytime God's word reveals something of darkness, a spot of blemish to us, we're looking into the mirror and we see that in ourselves. We ask him to purge that, purge, put that to death in us, help us to depart from that so we'll be without a spot of blemish. But the wicked of the unjust has no shame. If we defraud somebody, we're like Zacchaeus. If I've cheated or defrauded anybody, I'll pay fourfold. If our ways and actions is demeaning to the body of Christ, we need to apologize. We need to repent and turn from that not being rebellion against God to establish ourselves to be clothed in Christ so that he won't have to humble us I have to judge us. It says, when if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. See, because he bore the humiliation and the shame of the cross. That was a humiliating death that he died. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We must do the same. We must take up our cross and follow after him. Now, taking up that cross, that that was a shameful thing in the Roman culture to die a death of crucifixion on a cross. That was a sinful thing to, to, to have a leader or someone. It's like if your son or your father, somebody had was a mass murderer or something, you wouldn't want to show your faces in a lot of places, would you? You wouldn't be proud of that. Uh, The Amplified says, looking away from all that will distract us and focusing our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith, that is the first incentive for our belief and the one who brings our faith to maturity, who for the joy of accomplishing the goals set before him endured the cross, disregarding the shame and set down at the right hand of the throne of God, uh, which shows that he had completed his work and his authority and the completion of that work, that it was finished, that it was finished. And that's the same thing with us. We should be delighted to suffer for Christ, to please Christ, to bear the shame. You remember Paul and Silas was whipped in jail for the name of Christ? Well, we should be we should rejoice that we are able to suffer shame and suffering and humiliation for the name of Christ, not for things we had done, but for the name of Christ doing what he had said do, living a life as he said live. Uh, I think this is the living version. It says, sometimes the public shame of the cross is overlooked when one thinks, thinks of the pain and agony inflicted by it. But in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was a shameful and a disgraceful way to die, a form of capital punishment from which Roman citizens were exempt. And in Rome, a Roman comedy was used in a curse go to a bad cross. God allowed his son to suffer crucifixion because it was a very shameful way to die. So he had to die on that cross to bear that shame and humility. That's what we have to do. We have to bear the shame and the humility and suffering in this life, the same as he did. 
Now, Babylon, we see where Babylon suffers in the end because of her pride and arrogance says that she wasn't going to suffer. You know, it's a lot of people that live a high-minded life and live a life of self-pleasure and don't want to suffer in this life. But we must have to choose suffering in this life over working against that which the Word of God says not to work against. You understand what I'm saying? If if we have a choice, if this is going to please Christ, we will do what pleases Christ, even though we're shamed and humiliated before people. It is better to sacrifice to please God than to uh, please man. No one, uh, it was the death of criminals and incorrigibles for those considered the scum of the earth. And Paul was telling Timothy and his people not to be shamed of his afflictions and being cast in jail. You know, people say, hey, your preacher's in jail again. He, your preacher did this or whatever. But he says, don't be ashamed of what I'm going through. You stand up for and you'll see if you come to the light, you'll see why the suffering and the shame that goes along with this cross. No one in Jesus' day would have bragged about having a relative or something, as I said, that did that died in this way or whatever, just like I said, for your son or daughter to be a mass murderer or whatever, you know, you wouldn't be proud of that. That You wouldn't be going around telling everybody that. But we go around telling of a Savior that suffered and died for us. To make matters worse, Jesus was crucified between two robbers, according to Matthew 27 and 38. So the typical passerby would have judged Jesus guilty by association. Hey, that's, he was among two criminals, you know. A lot of time, a lot of people has us guilty through association. That's why he says, beware of the company that we keep. But we, we have to see only God can see the heart. Why are you among the sinful people? Why are you eating with sinners? Remember, he ate with sinners or whatever. So you can't be scared of being judged for hanging out with sinners. They call him a wine-bibber and a glutton. They call him Beelzebub, but they call him a fornic- that he was born of fornication. He didn't try to clarify that to them or whatever. He bore the shame. Can you imagine the shame Mary bore that she was pregnant before she got married? Can you imagine the shame? That's why Joseph was thinking of a way to put her away privately. But then he had to marry this woman that everybody said, yeah, that might be for somebody else or whatever. You know, She was pregnant when he married her or whatever. So that's the stigma that was attached to that. Sometimes we get things attached to us and shame that we can't get rid of. Why and how does shame enter the picture? That's what the daughter of Babylon is going to be shamed. She can say expose the tie. The things that she was trying to prevent a save she loses in this life. God's going to bring her to shame, humiliation, and destruction, casting her in shame and humiliation permanently. She's not garage from this. We'll get over this. One day we'll wear a crown. We'll be rewarded for the shame and humiliation and suffering we're going through for the name of Jesus. Uh, sin causes shame, and sin is shameful. And Jesus died a shameful death to depict the shame that was brought about by our sins. It wasn't his sins. It was our sins 
that he bore on the cross. So it was our shame and humility that he took upon himself. It should be shameful to be known as an idolater, a one who takes God's name in vain, or breaks the Sabbath, or disrespects his parents. Any of these things we should be shame of and not boastful of, but nowadays people are boastful of the worst things that, that they should be ashamed of. They have no shame. And that's what I tell you, Christians today, they have no shame about the, what they do to get rich and the ways they have of, of acquiring wealth. Sin does not make us look good, nor does it make our family proud of us. Sin is shameful, and we should be ashamed of sin. We should be very much ashamed of sin. Crucifixion was shameful not only as a penalty, but also as a process. In most cases, the victim was stark naked, allowed little or no loin cloth. Remember that little cloth? If you see him hanging on the cross, it's just a loin cross in its midway, but the rest of it, you virtually was naked on the cross. And that's why in 47th chapter here, he says, Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, their shame shall be, be shown. And the layer of the sins, he said, thou poor, wretched, and naked. This is God exposing our nakedness. And just think of a lot of people where, the, of like the thing, the emperor has no clothes on. A lot of people, these things that they've done in the dark, this filth in their lives, it's a lot of people that don't show it on the outside. Sometimes you think the man or the woman is the evil one in the marriage, but the one, the spouse that you think is right, right, is a wicked and evil person. The child of the individual, one day that shame, that humility is going to be exposed by Christ. Christ will expose that. The Bible in many places discusses the shame of nakedness. So that's where that nakedness and humility comes in. At Isaiah the 47th chapter and the third verse is, you shall be you shall be in nakedness and shame. I will take vengeance upon you and will not repent. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and shall not rise again. Let us not be part of that Babylon. Let us come out of Babylon so we won't take part in those plagues. Revelation 3.18 says, You say I'm rich with everything I want and I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that spiritually you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's because you see the world through a physical lens. You have all the material goods in the world, but your soul is in horrible shape like the man who kept laboring and laboring to build a bigger bonds. But when his soul was required of him, that soul was in horrible condition. So it's a lot of us that are spiritually negative. When he told Adam that, that the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That day, God, Adam lost communication with God. He was thrown out of the garden. He couldn't enter back into that garden. He couldn't eat of the tree of life and live. So in dying, he died. That day he died. Anytime we lack communications with God, We've been out a few days here because of the holidays or whatever. We've been out. And 
don't you feel a kind of a weakness? We need to get back to the church. We need to get back to teaching. It seems as though once you're away from God, if you miss a day of prayer or Bible study or something, you feel the weakness set in. You know, you, you need that constant communication, uh, a relationship with God. The book of Revelation, the 16th chapter, the 15th verse says, Take note, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are those who are waiting on me, who keep their robes in readiness and will not need to walk naked and ashamed. There's a lot of people waiting to the last minute. Oh, man, I'm going to wait and I'm going to repent at the last minute. I'm going to follow Christ when I get old. I'm going to follow Christ later on. I'm going to wait. You do not when he comes. He's going to come as a thief in the night. You're going to be like the five foolish. You're going to be trying to get ready. It's a lot of people that are not in Bible study. It's a lot of people that are not going to church, assembling themselves together. But when Christ comes back, it's going to be too late to do all that. It's going to be over with. The condition of state you are found in is how you end up. That's fixed and fitted in. So now is the day of salvation. We must prepare. You can't get ready once he's come, once he returns. Imagine being a sinless person, having committed no crime or sin, yet exposed to all who passed by. Being a modest man, Jesus was ashamed to have been exposed to his mother and the, and the other women, the apostle John and the multitude of spectators, male and female. What humiliation our Savior endured, that his hand on the cross, his mother's looking there, he's naked at the other women and all of the people that he was leading about, all of the people that he done good for. Those that he worked miracles for, he fed and did all this. There he's hanging upon a excruciating cross, suffering agony, dying as a common criminal. How humiliating and shameful that, that must have been. Amen. Proud and self-centered. We see that in the prodigal son, the wasteful son in the book of Luke, the 15th chapter. That younger son, he shows a, a, a lack of respect and a f- authority, a deference to his elders. And the Bible tells us to honor our parents, to honor the elders, the older people or whatever. But you know, we are living in a disrespectful time. The book of Romans talks about the first chapter about that being disrespectful and unthankful. And... His central problem is pride, just as it was the root of Satan's failure is pride. And that's what I say. Babylon is the source of pride. Satan is the father of all that's proud, all that's high-minded, a heart he lifted up. Isaiah 14 and 13 says, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will set up also set up on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And aren't that what we're doing? The book of Jude says, filthy dreamers that defile the flesh. That's all people think about today, daydreaming of how they go get rich, what they go have, of, of the next step, of the partying the weekend, the pleasures. That their mind is continually wicked in thinking of evil. And that's what happened during the times of Noah. 
man's mind was continually wicked. It was continually evil in devising those thoughts. He finds out that shame and destruction follows pride. He was so proud and left there with all his, his portrait of the inheritance and everything and living high. But one day he started to eat, had to eat. He was about to eat the husk with the hogs and the swine that he was feeding. No man gave him anything. The world doesn't give us anything. That's what happens to Babylon, the woman, the great Mr. Hollett. The king stood by and seen her downfall. It's a lot of people that see your downfall that want to take advantage of you. And we'll notice that these people consume the harlot. They eat of her flesh. They burn the harlot. This mystery woman, Babylon. Proverbs 11 and 2 says, When pride comes, that is, that boiling, arrogant attitude of self-importance. And that's what everybody with the self is. And everything in life, everybody's important. Everybody in the church have a title. Everybody's something. Nobody's just a servant of the average guy. When pride comes then come dishonor and shame. But with the humble, that is the teachable, who have been chiseled by trial and who have learned to walk humbly with God, there's wisdom and soundness of mind. But to the proud, they shall fall when pride coming in. But those that have learned to humble themselves and pray and walk with God, God exalts you. If you would humble yourself. Proverbs 16 and 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a hearty spirit before fall. In his disrespect for authority, he thinks primarily of himself, totally disregarding how it affects others. And that's what this world is about today. No one expects, respects authority. No one respects authority on the job, in the home, out in public. It's about themselves. They go in the mall. They go somewhere and they shoot up the people. It's all about themselves, how they feel. How is, you don't think how it's going to affect your family. How it's going to affect the people around you, your children and others. It's all about self. Do we sit down and contemplate I don't think we no longer as a nation know how to contemplate. We don't sit down and think things over or reason or have any reason or rationale. It's just like this prodigal, a wasteful son. His request for his inheritance is not to benefit others, but to pursue pleasure, especially entertainment. Give me that what I got coming. Let me go out with my friends. Let me go party. Even the oldest son, when the young son came back or whatever, he told the father, you never give me a kid. You never did throw me a party or did this for me or whatever. We have to stop thinking about self. Self-sacrifice. We have to die to self. Self-pleasure, all of these things. In me, I'm one of the worst offenders of that. I had completely died. Paul said, I die daily. In other words, you have to see things. That God has to be showing things in you that necessarily has to be put to death. That's when Paul came to the point later in life where he said he was the chiefest of sinners. That's why in the book of Romans, he wrote Romans later. 
And we see where he was struggling to overcome this. He says, when I attempt to do good, evil is right there with me. We have to watch ourselves. Pride and arrogance is there. Proverbs 21 and 17 says, He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves that is devoted to wine and oil will not become rich. Don't look for the next weekend for pleasures and tailgating and doing all this thing. If that's what you love, you become a poor person. Now that's the word of God saying that. If we seek pleasure in all of these things, as a result, his unwise actions brings him to a point of despair and reevaluation in his life that he says, you know, in my father's house of many servants, and they have all of these things, and I go back and tell my father I'm willing to be a servant now. After thinking about it, after contemplating these things, sometimes, like I said, God has to bring us mighty low before he can raise us up. Before God can do anything with us, he has to humble us, as he did Nebuchadnezzar. It took seven years for him to humble Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar says, isn't this great Babylon which I had built? Notice that God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Bring yourself down. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. By demanding his share of his inheritance before his parents' death, he shows that he looks upon God's gifts as a debts rightfully owed to him. Like a baby, mine, mine, mine. A baby's always thinking about what? Themselves, not sharing. You know, my grandkids, be thinking, when they want something that somebody else has or whatever, they say, you remember Momo said for us to share? Momo told us to share. Oh, you remember that now that you don't have, you want what I have. But we should always be mindful of other people and helping others and lending a hand to others, being a good Samaritan. People today constantly, selfishly, and arrogantly press their rights rather than fulfill their responsibilities. And it's all about your rights, standing your ground. It's not about what your responsibilities are. What are your obligations to society? As John Kennedy says, ask not what your country can do for you, but what it is that you can do for your country. Are you attempting to please God? Are you trying to be well-pleasing to God? I think that's what your life focus should be. How can I please God? David was a man after God's own heart, and we must be the same. We must seek to please God, to glorify God. What's going to give God glory out of? How can I glorify God? Jesus made himself of no reputation, but he sought to glorify God. Many people will not wait until marriage for sex, but they seek it before the marriage. They can't abstain from from sex before the marriage. It's dating and all of these other things. They don't want to work to get wealthy. They would rather win the lottery, the more money is in the lottery, the more people go play that don't even normally play the lottery. It's all about getting rich quickly. Young couples get married today and 
They so burdened with finance. They so proud and high-minded. The wedding ceremony costs thousands of dollars. Thousands of dollars. Uh, my daughter's doing a wedding this weekend. I think that building and thing she has that rents out and does those we weddings, is thousands of dollars involved. They'd be so heavy in debt. Both have cars and they want a nice home and all this. To after they're married, if they get a divorce two or three years later, they're in court trying to spit up who owe all this debt, who pay this and who pay that. They have to declare bankruptcy or something. Trying to get too much too quick. Patience is involved in that. Sadly, they will also wait a long time before taking care of their spiritual needs and then only when brought to despair. Second Corinthians 6 and 2, Ecclesiastes 7 and 8. I didn't extend those. I, I've got to hurry here to get through with this. Uh, but look those two up. Second Corinthians 6 and 2, Ecclesiastes 7 and 8. Mourning. The Beatitudes tells us about mourning. The, the blessedness of mourning. Blessed are they that mourn. Luke 18 and 13 says, And the publican standing afar would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But the publican and the, and the multitude who repented at Peter's preaching felt that plague of sin in, in each one's own heart. They had been convicted when Peter preached unto them. They say, What must we do to be saved? See, if God's word convicts you, if the, the publican was convicted when he went in there and he prayed and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, but not the Pharisee. The Pharisee, of all, was telling God or bragging, but I pay tithes twice, I pay tithes on this, I pray, I fast twice a week. He was bragging of his accomplishments and achievement. But the morning springs from a conscience made tender and heartfelt awareness of hostility towards God's will and personal rebellion against him. How does this come about? By listening at preaching and teaching that we've sinned and that we're in rebellion against God and preachers are not preaching. What they're preaching now is a gospel that says God loves you and the favor of God and you favor and God wants to do this, but they're not telling you things to cleanse you of who you are and what you are. So you're going to be in a sad condition when you hear the true gospel, when you hear repentance because you had repented because the priest said, God accepts you just as you are. Amen. Yes. No, it's not. God gives you a new heart and God says, you have to walk this way. You have to continue in my word. You have to do these things. You have to deny yourself, and we want to live our best life now. If you live your best life now, what's heaven for? What's the kingdom of God for? If you live in your best life now. It is grief expressed because one has become acutely aware that the morality he holds falls so short of holiness that shame arises to the surface that I thought I was good, but there's none good but God because what I'm thinking to do good, that's what I should, that's what was required of me. So I'm not getting paid to do all those because that's how I should have been. I fall so short because my mind shows me now of what true morality is. It's like Peter when he was on the ocean, he said, 
Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. See, but you only find that out in God's word, in his teaching, where he convicts you, and you you begin to understand and get a heartfelt conviction from the spirit. It is the spirit that convicts us, convinces us of sin. Once we start seeing and understanding God's word, we see how short and how dark we are and how he had to come and die and live that way to be a perpetuation for us. That we were so wicked that it was our shame that he was taking. It was the, he endured the cross for us. We couldn't do it. And now when, when we're learning to do it, we're not, we, we, like the rich young ruler, he says, take up your cross, sell what you have, and come follow after me. He couldn't because he had too much. He thought it was too much. He says, sell all that thou have and give to the poor and come and follow after me. But he was very sorrowful because he wasn't ready to part with the things of this world. He was like Demas. One also feels this way when he realizes that his personal behavior and his attitudes have caused the death of his creator and savior. It was for me he died. If we start taking that personally and saying it was for my sin the reason he died, I'm the one put him on the cross. I'm the one that caused that shame and humiliation that he did. It was for me. We start personalizing that. I think we can live a much better life if we start taking that shameful route. If we take that route, become like Christ and live as he lived and bear that down here when we revile and revile not a given. When we start living by faith and humility, yes. when we start living that way, Colossians 3.12 says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. The Amplified Version says, Since you have been chosen by God who has given you this new kind of life, and because of his deep love and concern for you, you should practice tender-hearted mercy and kindness to others. Don't worry about making a good impression on them, but be ready to suffer quietly and patiently. If I suffer quietly, that's a long time. It's going to be things done wrong. But you're not going to be living to the way. I see it on television the other day where some woman walked out to the store, out the store and poured cold water on a homeless woman, cold as it was, this past December 26. How does the New Testament present humility? According to the commentator William Barclay, the classical Greek language did not even have a word for humility that included no sense of shame because in that society and culture, the Greeks and the Romans, that was a, 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 a feminine, a, that wasn't something that you wanted to show was humility and shame and humbleness. That's what this last president says about not apologizing and being arrogant. That exposed this nation, a whole lot of it, as being a Babylonian system. The exposition of that. The root of the word the apostles used literally means to depress, a very expressive word. To the Greeks, humility indicated civility and slavishness. This may have been because Greeks looked down upon anyone who acted in humility as not being an upstanding person of good 
character. Culturally, it was evil, shameful behavior, as to then it exhibited someone untrustworthy to to have those characteristics. That's what that culture taught. That that's the wrong type person you want to be. That's directly opposite of Jesus Christ's culture. At best, they would consider the person to be a wimp because they admired people who aggressively took charge, commanding others about. But the Christian approach is entirely different. It's entirely different. We would consider a few scriptures that give a description of the way humility enhances one's character. Psalms 113.47 says, For he is high above the nations, and his glory is far greater than the heavens. Who can be compared with God enthroned on high? Far below him are heavens and the earth. He stoops to look, and he lifts the poor from the dirt. Hmm. Psalm 138.6 says, Yet though he is so great, he respects the humble, but proud men must keep their distance. Both of these psalms, yet though he is so great, he respects the humble, but proud men must keep their distance. Now, both of these psalms picture God as being of awesome power, but he holds his power in check to achieve a greater good. Rather than destroy through imperious self-centeredness, he pities and builds with gentle understanding kindness. And that's how he brings us to repentance with kindness and in a gentle way. Being as great as and awesome as he is, he descends to the lowly and to the meek. That's who he looks down. That's who he helps up. Matthew 20th chapter to 25th to 28th verse says, uh, this is new covenant leadership here. Jesus says, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whosoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. See how it is with God's people, what Christ teaches. But Jesus said that it's not like the Gentiles. His kingdom is not that way. Matthew 11, chapter 29, verse, Jesus makes just insistence on humility exceedingly clear. He, this is what he said in that chapter and verse. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew 11 and 29 is a direct command from the same God described in Psalms, though he is acting as a man. That same one who said those two Psalms that are quoted by this greatness and awesome, this is the one that says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'm gentle and easy. His example and commands regarding this continue to be the way Christians are should or are to follow. Humility is not a weak, cringing approach to life. It is not a denial of power, 
but the deliberate control of controlling of power to accomplish a greater good. It comes into proper use when a converted person deliberately utilizes a servant approach rather than a natural, proud, and carnal human approach. We will go at this this way as a servant. I'm going to come after you with humility and patience. I'm going to do this differently from the world. That's why we have to learn it his way. It is the attitude that best promotes good relationship because it neutralizes pride and the damage that it causes. It can weaken a person's guard if they're hollering and screaming at you and you say, I'm sorry that you, you know, you, you never raise your voice or you never, you, in a, in a servant, a, a, a humble thing. That's why turning the other cheek is not escalating the argument. It's not a literally somebody punching you. You say, oh, no, man, hit this side. <clears throat> it means don't escalate the fight. You know, you're fighting and now somebody turns and go get a gun. Or somebody go get a knife or whatever. If you didn't left the fight, leave it. Just let it alone. Stay in the house. Stay away from this. Somebody's arguing. So I don't want to argue with you about it or whatever. It's not worth us arguing over and just leave it. Sometimes people say, oh, man, people think you're weak or whatever. I don't have to prove anything to anybody. We have to be of that way. At the very least, it indicates modesty that grows from a genuine self-evaluation that concludes the person deeming himself in a relationship with God and evaluate the situation and what would Jesus do in that situation. It says when reviled, he reviled not again. So you don't always have to retaliate or say something back. You don't have to be overbearing or whatever. Sometimes let that other person think they've won. Satan thought he had won when he hung him on the cross, when he killed him on the cross. But that was the biggest defeat of his life. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this day, Lord.